1: Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And welcome to episode 30. It's great to talk with you all again, and I hope that you all remain safe and healthy out there. And uh, I'm taking a little bit of a risk this morning because I'm recording this before I have my morning coffee. So living a little dangerously, so we'll see how this goes. And it's time to highlight this week's new Patreon supporters Thank you, Michael Cravens. I appreciate your support. And uh, folks, you you may remember Mike from episode 18. And thanks once again to all my Patreon supporters. And uh, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, all one word. Okay, let's get to this week's guest. Uh, Gina Zwicky is here on the show because I follow her on Twitter. You've all heard me mention on several occasions that I follow a lot of people on in the sciences on Twitter. Uh, it, now that's a narrow enough channel to keep out a lot of the BS that comes with social media, and I get to learn a lot—not only about science and, and research, but uh, I also get to learn about scientists themselves too. Uh, so I enjoy following Gina. Uh, her her tweets are—you know—they're light and airy, and often there are frogs, and she's pretty funny too. She is Gina Goes Outside on Twitter, that's all one word, and Gina is G-I-N-A. And I'm so happy to have her come on the show and talk about her research and her work with Frog Watch and some other cool things she's done. So I didn't know much about her, so this interview was my chance to get to know Gina a little better, and now it's your turn. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the show. And this evening, we're talking with Gina Zwicky. Welcome to the show, Gina.
0: Thank you. It's so great to be here.
1: It, it's interesting. You're you're one of the few guests that I, I really don't know much about. We've never met. I, I follow you on Twitter. And so, but you're an interesting person. And I think uh, somebody that uh, my listening audience should get to know. I want you, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. So, My name is Gina Zwicky, as you already mentioned. I'm 25, and I'm a master's student at the University of New Orleans, and I'm working on a thesis uh, having to do with reptile immunogenetics, which we can talk a little bit more about later, but we originally connected through Twitter, where I post a lot of my nature photography encounters, stuff of that nature, as sort of a refuge from grad school in a way, too, you know, much as I'm having fun with my research, but it's become a really nice way to connect with like-minded people, other naturalists and biologists like yourself. So thanks again for having me on the show.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I'm entertained by what you post. Uh, number one, you post a lot of cool pictures from the new Orleans area, nature photos and lots of frogs in there and things like that. But you're also, you know, you have, you're very, you're very funny and, uh, you have this lighthearted, uh, Your posts are very lighthearted hearted they're, you know, I really just get a kick out of them. And, and, uh, it's a nice break, you know, from other things going on in the world to check in and see what uh, what animals you're currently holding on your finger or, you know, what frogs are currently in the tree or whatever it is you're up to. So it's it's kind of nice. And I also am enjoying uh, the antics of uh, Meatball, if you want to explain who Meatball is.
0: I'm sitting right next to her. Meatball is my sulcata tortoise, and I post a lot about her because she's adorable one, but... Also because she's sort of a good ambassador for sulcata tortoises as a pet species. They're really not a great pet for the vast majority of people, but are frequently impulse bought from pet stores or at reptile shows because when they're little, they're like little baby golf balls. They're so cute. And people will be like eager to purchase them for their kids with absolutely no idea how big they're going to get. Uh, As I'm sure you know, but the listeners may not, male sulcata tortoises can get upwards of 200 pounds, females usually in the 120 pound range at their full size. They have pretty stringent husbandry requirements as well. So I like posting meatball because it gives me an opportunity to show the best of her and her species while still sort of serving as that (laughs) conduit of information for people who might be interested in taking one on. Because there are so many in rescues across the country, across the world. Yes. And while I wouldn't advise people to take one on without having the proper area to house them, the proper means to feed them, I do think that they make great pets for the right home. And there are plenty of them that need the right home.
1: Yeah. So Meatball kind of serves as a, a, a conversation starter, too. So you can say, yeah, the, uh, he's very cute. And look at him eat. It. It's just He's a, he's a darling tortoise, but Hey, did you know they turn into bulldozers when they're full grown?
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness. There are so many pictures all around uh, the internet of them charging through drywall, stuff of that nature, just totally like terraforming, terraforming the backyard. They have immense destructive power, even Meatball, She's about the size of a football right now. And she can like move the little patio grill around. She's so crazy strong. Like. I, I'm kind of afraid of what she's going to be like when she's the giant behemoth, but I will love her just the same. I'm fully prepared to have her for the rest of my life, if, you know, if not the rest of her life. But sure. I'm really glad that others enjoy engaging with me on these. Like I've gotten into a lot of really good, productive conversations with people who have had them and not been familiar with the husbandry requirements, where we were able to come away with them having a little bit better of an idea of how to feed them in a way that keeps them healthiest stuff like that. So that always makes me feel really good.
1: Yeah. And I, I think the, the key words I saw in, in or I heard in there were fully prepared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's something like you say, it's an impulse buy for people to get uh, a wee little turtle that turns into something else. Uh, I'm familiar with them. I've never kept so, so as uh, but I, I keep red foot tortoises. So, which, um, max out at a much more reasonable size, uh, even though they, you know, much like them they're they are they're a commitment of many, many, many years. And, uh, mine are coming up on 20. I've had mine for just at 25 years now. And, uh, my oldest Redfoot right now is 60 years old. So,
0: wow. You have a book on Redfoot care as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. They're such charming animals. They really have great personalities.
1: Yeah. I, I, I really fell in love with them. I really enjoy them. And, And they're the only animals I have. Uh, I don't keep anything else that, you know, I've kept, lots of other reptiles over the years. But the, these, I said, I made the commitment, like you say, fully prepared, uh, made the commitment. And uh, I guess I'll keep them until I can't. And I'll have to find some some homes for them at some point. But because uh, most of them will, you know, they'll be around when I'm no longer around. So, I mean, I wish it was the other way around, but let's, you know, let's be real here.
0: Well, part of me uh, spending so much time endearing meatball to, to people on the internet is <laughs> I need a large network of people, you know, committed to helping me with her as I age, because she's only about eight or nine years old, to the best of my knowledge. She has a lot of life left, a lot of growing left to do. But my future in-laws are obsessed with her, the whole family. They'll come to visit and just like stand out for the, you know, social distance porch visits. All they care about is meatball. They're like, where's my daughter? i I brought her a treat they'll come over they're just like oh i've got i've got something for meatball and i'm just like who am i like (laughs) all right (laughs) it's it's really sweet though i really love that they love her so much but you know they really need all the love that they can get from people who are well equipped to care for them and keep them happy
1: Hmm, yeah i'm glad i brought it up because i I thought uh, i enjoyed just seeing how well you take care of her uh in your in your uh, tweets and uh uh, I think you when somebody else sees that it's one of those chain reaction things, right? People engage and then go away, and then it just sort of spreads information. That it's a it's a very useful thing.
0: I like to think. Uh, I hope.
1: Yeah, I think it's important. And you reach one person, you reach ten people. You know, you, you're at least reaching somebody who walks away with more information about these these animals. So I, one of my last guests, in my last interviews was uh, Deb Krohn, who's does reptile educate reptile and amphibian education. So, so I'm still sort of got that whole vibe going right now, but educating people about, <laughs> about herps. But, uh, so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your course of study and what you're involved with, uh, with, uh, reptile immunogenetics. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. So I study what is I guess most easily explained as host-parasite coevolution and the study system I use for that is an anole species from the Lesser Antilles, a very small island called Saba, and it's an endemic island anole and anoles are massively diverse, you know, a classic system of adaptive radiation across Central and South America and One of the reasons that I look at these Sabin specifically is because them being endemic to a very small island that doesn't have very many other native reptiles that are likely to compete with them, you know, things of the same size, et cetera. It's an interesting system to study how malaria can actually impact the immune genes of the host over time. So I have this pretty big longitudinal data set that I've gotten from the AMNH. And it's got blood dots samples, so blood samples from these lizards going back about 15 years. So we use those to extract DNA, and we run a test, a cytochrome B PCR detection test, to basically determine whether or not the lizard had malaria at the time the sample was collected. And we also sequence these samples for what are called major histocompatibility complex genes. So this is a really diverse gene family in vertebrates that has to do with immune control. So it's basically like looking at the raw workings of the immune response. And so we're directly comparing levels of parasite pressure in these sites over three distinct time periods to the variety of these immune genes. So it's a bit of a mouthful. I always kind of (laughs) trip over myself when I'm (laughs) trying to explain it, but um, it's really interesting. It's not work that I had ever really done before. And it's not so much herpetology as it is immunology and, you know, immunogenetics per se. But um, I really enjoy working on the Sabin animals. They're really cute. Uh, they're sexually dimorphic. And the males have this really beautiful spotted, like black spotted on a yellow background. The females are sort of drab, but they're really cool. So I enjoy my work. Um, hopefully finishing up in the spring. And we'll see where I go from there.
1: Well, cool. Well, I um, immediately I have a few questions. Well, sure. and I'm sure my first of all, there are people out there right now are going. Anoles can get malaria?
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: Let's let's go down that path a little bit.
0: Sure. So malaria is actually really widespread in reptiles and birds. It's extremely common in tropical habitats and it can occur in both a uh, chronic form and an acute form and both of them have sort of different symptomatic effects, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of interesting work to be done on coevolution of host and parasites specifically with malaria because it's pretty easy to test for. And again, it is so widespread. So basically, what we're looking at is just the evolutionary arms race between the parasite, which is continually evolving to be a better parasite, and the host, which is continually evolving to be a better defender against the parasite. Ah. So sort of getting a little snapshot of this kind of Red Queen hypothesis. You know, uh, that's what it's commonly called because of the the line about her running as fast as she can while always staying in the same place.
1: Yes. Yes. But
0: yeah, yeah. in, in a more succinct form, there uh, malaria is very widespread across multiple classes of vertebrates.
1: So, and how we all know the classic, well, we have the classic vision in our head of malaria affecting humans, which is not pleasant. And um, how about for the anoles? Is it uh, a debilitating disease for them? In some cases, did they do they have the, you know, like humans have chronic malaria, and they have you know different forms of malaria uh is that the same thing with these anoles or
0: yeah there's a pretty wide variety of susceptibility so you get some anoles that will just be killed outright by it and some of them can have these infections that persist for a long time and have apparently minimal or relatively minimal effects on their fitness so yeah a lot of variety hmm. to capture and it's interesting
1: and and let me get this island right it's seba so
0: Yes. And oh, okay. my gosh, I was pronouncing it wrong for like the first whole semester of my thesis. I talked to one of my collaborators, Dr. Susan Perkins, who's also on Twitter. She's really cool. And I was doing a presentation of my project and I was calling it Saba. And she's like, Gina, 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 it's it's Saba. And I was like, I just I just about died right in that Zoom meeting. But yes. So it is Saba. <laughs> Can well, confirm. that's
1: what that's what happens when you read things before you hear things, right? Oh
0: my God. I was exactly the kid who would do, do this all the time and embarrass myself constantly. So <laughs> you learn to take it in the
1: cheek, a bit, you know. So you got this big sample set and you said from AM, AMH? AMNH? AMNH.
0: So the American Museum of Natural History in New York.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I knew that, but I want to make sure we, yes our yeah, listening good. audience caught that. So, so they provide you with this big sample set.
0: Yes, Dr. Perkins and my PI had worked on collaborations before, and I was brought on specifically to work on this project. So we had the data set already available, and I kind of just jumped in and started figuring out protocols to amplify the genes that we're looking at. So, as well as the immune genes, we're also looking at what's called neutral genetic structure. So, neutral genes are genes that are not subject to selection. So, the ones that I'm looking at are called microsatellites, and they are tandem repeats of so it's basically a sequence of nucleotides that will repeat in a prescribed format for a ton of repeats. So you get like what's called a dimer. So like AT, 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 AT. And since these genes are not subject to selection, the mutations in these loci that we're looking at can be used to sort of infer relationships between populations that could be the result of gene flow. So okay. we're basically using that as sort of a backdrop to compare the neutral relationships between these populations with the differences in the immune genes that could be caused by the malaria. Hopefully that was a clear enough explanation of that. But
1: I think I caught most of that. It sounds like that's a gene set that if there is a difference, it's, it's a difference because there's a population, a separation of the population. It's yes. not a random mutation. So it's an indicator that this is a little bit different group.
0: Yeah, exactly, because if you have a mutation in one of these microsatellite loci, and it's common throughout a population, and then the same exact mutation appears in a different population, you could sort of infer that there has been gene flow between the two. Gotcha. So we use that okay. to assess the patterns of gene flow across the island.
1: Okay. And it strikes me that this is very similar to the research that that is done with uh, vipers and pit vipers, uh, venomous snakes. Uh, the... Uh, Inter- interplay and uh I- evolution between predator and prey right you, you have uh rodents for example rattlesnakes and rodents and the rodents they're working on their building their immunity as a genetic whole across the population and the rattlesnakes are working at evolving their venom to overcome that you know so there's always this teeter-totter effect going on and so that's is that safe to say it's the same sort of characterization
0: it's basically the exact same thing yeah uh it's super interesting and this coevolution between two what we call opposing species is how we get some of these fantastic adaptations in nature so i I think it's super super cool it's interesting to study across groups but yes that would definitely be an accurate characterization
1: okay as you say this is more uh, uh genetics than herpetology would you consider yourself more a geneticist or a herpetologist or An ecologist or where do you fit into this?
0: It feels a bit presumptive uh, or presumptuous rather for me to call myself any sort of expert in anything right now. I feel like I'm kind of taking Uh it all in and sort of at the place where my paths may diverge and I might choose one or another. But I think probably I would call myself uh, an ecologist at the end of the day. Um, Most of the work I've done in the past has revolved around ecology and what I'm doing right now for my master's project is a bit of a diversion from that to sort of build my genetic tools and kind of become more of a complete researcher per se. So, um, I would, I would call myself an ecologist, (laughs) I suppose, but typically I just call myself a grad student.
1: So is this line of research something that would have existed say 10 years ago?
0: So yes, uh, the major histocompatibility complex, there's been research on that going back for a while now, but the advent of a lot more inexpensive genetic tools has made this kind of work a lot easier. So the sequencing that I do for the MHC loci that I'm looking at is called next-gen sequencing, and it's becoming more and more affordable for a lot of different research centers and universities. So a lot more people have kind of started to do this sort of research. It's really interesting. It's um, it's great that it's becoming more accessible because it's really important. Um, conservation genetics is the broader term for the field. That's what my lab sort of builds itself as, is a conservation genetics lab. But I see. there are a lot of theories that we kind of still work with that existed several decades ago.
1: I see, and as far when you talk about sequencing, uh, gene sequencing, for example, these these anoles on, uh, SeBA, are you sequencing all the, in the entire genome, or are you just sequencing a, a, a section of? Are you working on what are you working off of? I mean, do they have the entire genetic sequence for these animals, or?
0: So that's an interesting question because they don't for anoles, but they do for the green anole, Anolis carolinensis, and that has a lot to do with the tools available to us because primers are basically little strands of genetic material that bind to your area of interest. In my case, it's a 250 base pair fragment of the major histocompatibility complex, Exon 2. And you can use these primers to basically clip on wherever you want to look at. And it sort of excises, you know, kind of simplifying it a bit, but um, you use it to basically clip out the section that you want to look at. And the tools already existed for several other species to identify the locus that we were interested in, in the Sabin annul. So the genomes are Similar enough that we can use same primers from different anole species that have a better studied genome for this exact same work.
1: Okay, and I know I did know that the anolis carolinensis had been sequenced, but I wasn't sure if they were if it was just easier to knock off these whole organism sequencing projects, if you will. I I didn't know if it would become easier just to do one species after another. But so that's but uh, carolinensis provided sort of the the playbook for doing this or?
0: Yeah. So we have the whole genetic code so we can create these primers that will bind reliably to the same gene in the different species Uh, just because they're closely related enough that it sort of applies to multiple species. We are also using primers from, I believe, the Dominican anole. So I'm very grateful for the work of others that I've piggybacked on for my little project. So.
1: Well, this is interesting. And so one uh, one big important project is you know making it available for people to do these other like you to do these other studies just based uh, on one small snippet of, of of data from the overall Carolinensis genome.
0: Mm-hmm. It's great, and one of the great things about this is that so much of this information is open source. So NCBI, I can't remember what it stands for, which is embarrassing, but uh, it's an online database of genetic material or GenBank, and you can just go on there and look up the whole genome of so many things or just specific genes that you're interested in. And you can use those sequences that other researchers have just taken the time to kind of paste in and upload for all kinds of really interesting work. So I spend a lot of time just kind of like messing around in GenBank for practicing in a lot of these different softwares that I use. But it's great that, you know, everybody's kind of motivated to put that out there for everybody else to use.
1: So that also leads to my next question. If you're, if you're studying the annoles and how they perhaps adapt to uh, malaria. Are you also looking at the malaria at malaria? Is malaria on the island of Saba, is the malaria parasite also, if, if it's also in, evolving, are you looking at uh, snippets of its gene code too, or what are you looking at?
0: So we are just basically looking at the raw prevalence for this study, but I do have an undergraduate research assistant who's doing a really cool project of her own, which is actually sequencing little snippets of genetic material from these malaria positive samples to determine which species of plasmodium is actually present in the lizard. And there are three that we've detected so far, which is really, really interesting. So there's probably a lot going on in the ecology of the malaria parasite that we don't understand, but it's a bit beyond the scope of what I'm doing for my project. But I'm very grateful for her help. She's doing a really great work. She's probably going to get a publication out of this, which is awesome. So super happy
1: about that. I see, and uh, thanks that remind. You know, couldn't think of what the uh, what the name of the malaria parasite was. And It's Plasmodium some species, right?
0: Yeah, so we have three on the island. It's Plasmodium floridense. I've heard people say floridensi too, so I'm just going to say both to cover myself. Uh, Asyrofilum and leukocytica. So we're finding a variety of all those different species in different time periods, etc. So we're going to be looking to see if we can glean anything about the patterns of infection across our study sites across time. See if we can make any connections out of that, sort of just experimental.
1: And the island, because of its its isolated population, um, and as you say, there's not a lot of speciation there, so it's sort of the 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 best laboratory for this kind of work, right?
0: Exactly. That's it's a really unique opportunity, actually, because what we're doing is basically trying to test which hypothesis out of a variety of several established hypotheses best explains the patterns that we're seeing. And what we are thinking is that it's likely fluctuating selection. So a certain set of immune genes being more beneficial in one time in one site and a different set of immune genes being beneficial in another time in another site. So as the parasites sort of encounter all of these different genotypes across time and space, they fluctuate with their genome as well to sort of match it. So you get this sort of sinusoidal sinusoidal relationship. And I'm so sorry, I totally forget where I was going with this this line (laughs) of thought. But yeah, um, the natural system that we've got on Saba is pretty useful for testing this because the reason why it's important that there aren't that many other reptiles of similar size and ecologies on the island is because it can affect the infection dynamics. So- Uh These plasmodium parasites are not species specific. You'll find them in many reptiles. So having just one species that's not really competing with anything else or cohabiting with anything else that's likely to transmit the infection kind of helps us keep our variables limited, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. And and now I will never look at another anole again without wondering whether or not it's carrying malaria.
0: They all do. No, uh, it's really common <laughs> in Louisiana too, apparently, but yeah.
1: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting, uh, be, because we don't have a lot of malaria in humans in Louisiana.
0: Mm-hmm. So these are species that, to my knowledge, only infect reptiles. So hopefully we're not getting lizard malaria anytime soon.
1: Uh, it's still 20. We still, <laughs> yeah, have, right? we still have a, good, have a, still a, a few good. days left in <laughs> yeah. 2020. So us not you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I often in the field, I see a lot of mosquitoes on frogs, too. So now I'm wondering if frogs also get malaria.
0: That's a good question. I actually don't know. I would find it likely that they do, but I'll have to look into that. Frogs don't need any more diseases. No more diseases for frogs. They've got enough. Yeah.
1: yeah. Our, our buddies have taken it on the chin already, uh, too oh, much already. Is. But yeah. I'm sure you've seen mosquitoes all over frogs in the field and
0: Mostly all over me. I feel like I spare the frogs every time I go out there. I've got like 40 of them on my leg, like two seconds after I get out of the car. They sit on my window like pterodactyls. Like I'm just (laughs) coexisting with it at this point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of the price you pay for living in a place where you can still go out and see frogs in December, right?
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. I try not to take it for granted. Uh, We have a really lovely little forest right in city limits in New Orleans, We're really fortunate to have a very, very large urban park called creatively named City Park. But there's a section about a 60 to 70 acre wood that we have there. And that's where I post a lot of my pictures from. So I'll Uh go out there and even now I could probably go to my little secret frog spot and find my frogs. (laughs) So I'm blessed. It's true.
1: This sounds like a good place to segue um, maybe into... uh... The work, the, uh, let me get make sure I get this right. You do uh, NOLA Frog Watch. Is that the name of it?
0: Yes. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to be as active as we would like to during the COVID experience right. uh, for obvious reasons. But it's a really awesome program. So the AZA, so um, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, has a community science program called Frog Watch, which is what I do. It's just the New Orleans branch of it. And basically, the purpose of this program is to get community members involved with monitoring frog calling data. So this data is really easy to take. You can have a brief training session with a volunteer. And we usually do this just right at the beginning of every trip, even if people have been there before. We'll play the frog calls. We'll show a picture and give little mnemonics that will help people identify, like, which frog they're hearing or what they're likely to hear. So the eastern narrowmouth toad, everybody says they sound like a, a sheep in distress or something. I'll just yep. for everyone's benefit like e <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Oh my god. But then we go down to our sites deep in Jean Lafitte Barataria Preserve. So we walk along the boardwalk and we'll stop at a little site and then have 3 to 5 minutes of complete silence. So no cell phones, everybody sits down, no papers rustling, no nothing, which is not always easy to get people to do by the way. But uh <laughs> Then after that, we'll start our count and just take note of how many frog species we're hearing, how many individuals of each species. So you can have, you know, a lone individual, you can have a full chorus, anything in between. And then we record that data and upload it to a database. And this information is actually really potentially useful because especially in Louisiana, where we have so many devastating impacts due to climate change, uh, especially climate warming can change the behavioral ecology of amphibians pretty significantly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So having a really large data set from multiple sites on the calling activity of all these different amphibian species is really useful for informing conservation plans. So people see. seem to have a lot of fun and get really into, you know, the save the frogs mentality. Very easy for yeah. us to love, as I'm sure you know. But
1: Yeah, that's a, a great community science or as you will, citizen science, uh, project, right. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody can be involved.
0: Yeah. And it's really easy to train for. You don't need any prior experience or prior knowledge. And, you know, even if you don't really get the knack of identifying the frog species on your first try, that's why I'm there. So I'm kind of a ham. I don't know if that's like obvious or not, but, um, so I have a lot of fun as just a, a nature interpreter on these trips as well. So I'll take people out to all my favorite spots, show them the cool nighttime animals We see crazy stuff. We see like death rolling alligators in the middle of the water with an opossum in their mouth. Yeah. We've had some interesting encounters. Yeah. Tell people to grab a nearest branch in case the feral hogs start, coming, which they never have. (laughs) It's fine. It's safe, but yeah, it's a good time. Boy.
1: (laughs) So this place you're talking about that, is that right? Is that close to New Orleans too?
0: Yes. It's about a half hour drive from where I live in the lower garden district. And it's a really beautiful swamp wetlands preserve uh that encompasses a couple different habitat types. You've got some bottomland hardwoods and cypress swamp and also kind of just like a brackish marsh out towards the fringes of it. But it's lovely. It has a boardwalk, so it's accessible to just about everybody. Um it goes pretty deep in a couple of miles and it just takes you through a really, really nice kind of slice of Louisiana nature. And it's really mile long. Yeah, yeah. Um I think in total it's like three or four miles long, something like that. So
1: wow i'm a big fan of those boardwalks and that sounds awesome
0: oh you got to check it out i take everybody who comes to go it's just
1: the best so definitely
0: if you're ever in the area
1: so when you take these people out and you train them to uh learn the different frogs and how do they how do they take the data what do they do to record data and how do they get that data back to the frog watch people
0: so typically we have one data collector and they'll just be the person who like wants to hold the clipboard and feel important, you know, so we'll always get one person. And then we all take a consensus on the weather. So we'll take like a wind estimate on a Beaufort scale, uh, cloud cover, etc. And then at each site of the three sites that we stop at, we'll just have them mark off, you know, checkbox for which species you heard, checkbox for how many you think there were. And then I take it and I upload it to the frog watch database. So, okay, yeah, it's a pretty simple process to participate. Okay.
1: So you got to go to their site and enter the data.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward okay. and it's really okay. easy to get started doing this in any community. So if anybody's listening and wants to start frog watch, you should, it's great and so much fun. I
1: have to put the link to frog watch in the show notes for this. Uh, so that well, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I, I confess I haven't been involved with it, but I'm, I'm familiar with the technique. Uh, and what they do. And uh, maybe I should also be involved. i feeling a little guilty here. Uh, <laughs> so how many, how many people come out and do this with you? I mean, this is a bad year for, yeah uh, for that. But uh, normally, I mean, do you get bunches of people coming out and they're interested and
0: It depends. So sometimes we'll have just a few people. And that's usually when it's really cold or gross out and we're not likely to hear something. But uh, if it's well advertised, it's usually pretty well attended. So we'll get groups of up to 15 or so people. And of course, right when I got the green light to start taking people out again, it started getting really cold and there's no frogs calling right now. You'll see them, but they're not really doing much. So a couple of intrepid explorers are welcome to come with me and take no data if they want to just go in the swamp at night. But yeah.
1: Well, that, that negative data is important too, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So like you said, it's really important to know when the frogs are calling and just as important to know when they're not. So.
1: Right. And how many species do you typically get in, in this area, in your area?
0: So there's a pretty wide range of species we can encounter, but we usually encounter about eight different species Okay. And I'm going to try to rattle them off. I got to test myself. I'm going to, this is going to be so embarrassing. Okay. So we'll get green tree frogs, squirrel tree frogs, bird voice tree frogs, green frogs, bull frogs, pig frogs, eastern narrowmouth toads, spring peepers. God, I know I'm forgetting something. Cricket frogs. There we go. Cricket okay. frogs. Yeah. And those are our, our usual suspects.
1: Very good. And it's it's interesting to me that uh, perhaps in terms of Frog Watch, I mean, chapters. You can do this all over the country, but it sounds like that's when you do this, how do people find out about it? Do they, is it the folks that go to nature centers and things and they find out about the program or? Largely, yes. <laughs> so you're you're not on the, you're not on the five o'clock news or something, right?
0: No, but um, I was lucky to kind of start doing the program as shadowing uh, a woman who was working at Jean Lafitte and had a significantly sized mailing list of very enthusiastic frog watchers. So we have a lot of people that will come again and again, too. And sometimes they're super, super interesting. Uh, a lot of the herpetology faculty from local universities will come. Also, some entomologists. Like, there's this one man who is a local entomologist, and he's got this little clip-on macro lens that changed my life. He came to Frog Watch once and started taking just pictures of spiders in the dark. And then I had to get myself one. And now you guys can't escape all of my spider pictures. So <laughs> <laughs> mailing lists are very interesting people. It's it's honestly an awesome group very diverse with respect to profession age etc so
1: are you getting kids out there too
0: not very often actually i think uh, some people have a bit of a reservation about taking their child to a swamp full of alligators in the middle of the night you shouldn't i'll protect them it's fine but yeah i don't
1: Um, know i don't know why
0: (laughs) yeah right mostly adults (laughs) though yeah i haven't seen that many kids but we would love to have more for sure
1: okay so do you have like uh the uh a particular story or incident or person that stands out in, in your mind for your frog watch adventures? Is there something that stands out you want to share with us?
0: I just think that one entomologist is so cool. He's on Twitter too, but I'm not going to call him. <laughs> I just don't want to, you know, make, okay. make a point of that. but yeah, he was just talking about all his medical entomology consults. It's just fascinating. But yeah, um, we get a lot of local herpetologists, like I mentioned as well. And it's just so much fun seeing people, who I had gone to school as a student of, you know, just totally geeking out in the swamp, like becoming little kids again over just seeing salamanders, like walking right along the trail. Um, There's not a whole lot of conversation between the whole group on these hikes. So you don't always get to know everybody personally because part of the point of it is kind of just try to keep the noise level down. Yeah. But the people that I have interacted with extensively have all been really, really
1: cool. Okay. So, and, and I guess like you, uh, you're talking about these herpetologists, you know, after a long day of, you know, pawing through gene sets, it's just <laughs> kind of good to go out and experience the entire organism.
0: Mm-hmm. That's 99% of what I do. Uh, a lot of the content that I post on Twitter is just the like, oh, my God, I've literally been looking at my gene software all day long. Like, I have to see a frog or I'm going to die. Like, <laughs> I have my my <laughs> little reliable spots that I can go. And I'm very friendly with the local box turtle populations, which are Hibernating Ooh. right now. Very sad. But um yeah, so <laughs> that's a lot of what I do is sort of just try to get myself back into the field as often as I can just to kind of keep myself connected to what I'm actually doing. You know, I'm not really just like tick tic tick tac, you know, all day long. It's it's important to understand, like you said, the whole organism connection.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm intrigued about the box turtle. So you are you, uh, you're out there hiking around and you have a, a pretty good chance of seeing one on on a regular basis.
0: Okay, so I am like a freak about tracking you know when i'm most likely to see them i have like an almost like an excel spreadsheet going of like my turtle variables over the summer and spring because i have nothing better to do but um i've gotten pretty good at telling when i am most likely to see a box turtle and it's usually right after it rains in like early afternoon you're almost guaranteed they'll all be out because as you may know they love to eat slugs and snails And it's almost as though, you know, I don't want to anthropomorphize, it's almost like they know the snails are going to be out and they're like, Ooh, you know, rubbing their little turtle hands together. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you see them less and less. My
1: time to shine, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But I, it it became sort of like a, a party trick almost like, uh, when I was able to see my friends, you know, for a distance hike in the woods, I was like, you want to see a turtle? I promise you, I'm going to find you a turtle. And I would always do it. It was great. So
1: (laughs) I, I know what that is exactly. When you possess a little nugget of information then <laughs> you can spring it on your your friends and and colleagues, and then walk around feeling a little bit smug for a while, right? you
0: know. <laughs> oh my God, I'm the turtle master. Like people yeah. don't believe me too, which just makes it so much sweeter. So it's yeah. a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, let's not underrate smugness because it's it's uh, it's a good feeling. It's all
0: know? I have right now. <laughs> like let me have this. <laughs>
1: That's cool. Of course, uh, I I miss box turtles. I haven't seen one since spring, so I'm uh, a little sad about that. But I guess yours right now are just kind of hunkering down, and they don't really hibernate there, do they? They just kind of— No,
0: they sort of brunate, you know, but they'll come out to drink water. Yeah. Yeah. I saw one a couple weeks ago through, like, a fence because the park that I go to is adjacent to a golf course. So there's a chain-link fence that's between the main trail and a small segment of forest that you just can't go in. And the turtles know, and they hide there from me. So I'll be like at the chain link fence holding it because I heard a turtle in the in the leaves, and I know what they sound like. But I saw one a few weeks ago who must have been coming out to just take a drink or something. He was so slow; it was like like (laughs) taking ten minutes to walk like four feet. So,
1: but they they still do come out, and uh, of course they they probably need to drink, like you say, and they take advantage. If if it's just warm enough to barely move around, they're going to take advantage of that. I don't think it's likely that they're going to get caught by some freakish cold snap where you're at at any rate.
0: So what I consider a freakish cold snap right now is really pathetic considering I'm from Philadelphia. Um, So when I first moved here, I was just like, oh, I'm just, you know, it'll be fine. I'm a, I'm a Northeastern girl forever. When I go home, I literally can't leave the house if it's below like 50 degrees, like 50 degrees. (laughs) It's pathetic. Like, so I consider a cold snap. I've been very, very upset that it's been like, 50 degrees for four or five days now um the turtles i don't think care because they can tolerate as i'm sure you know temperatures far (laughs) below that but um the turtles are more likely to tolerate it than i am so if they're doing that out there i wouldn't know
1: (laughs) well you're acclimatized now to the area so
0: yeah it's it's almost like a a horrible wet cold here because it's humid all year round and in the northeast and you know northern climates it's yeah it's it's cold but it's not like the bone chilling like seeping down which again the turtles don't care about so, yeah, we do get cold snaps, but not not like other people's cold snaps.
1: Yeah. Well, all our box turtles are in the ground. But it's funny. Uh, uh, I didn't realize this, uh, at least up at where I live. And I'm here in the uh, east central Illinois, a couple hours south, south of Chicago. And the, the box turtles will they'll burrow down into the ground. But they tend to leave their butts hanging out of the ground. They don't completely go underneath and and i have a couple rescued box turtles in my yard and in the same way you know they'll they'll get into the leaf litter and they'll burrow in and they'll be under the leaves but but the back part of their shell will be sticking out of the ground still it's it's just kind of interesting to me that they somehow that works for them somehow i'm not quite sure i'm not quite sure what mechanism they use but
0: (laughs) i've never been so blessed as to find a box turtle burrow but i can say that meatball does this exact same thing all the time uh-huh. I don't think she's as motivated to not, though, because she's from sub-Saharan Africa or rather her species is. So, you know, not like they really need to worry about keeping the goods warmed. But um, I would love to see that in the wild someday. That's that's my new dream.
1: <laughs> I have box turtles are about as cool as it gets. I love them. So you, you're going to wrap up your master's project this this coming spring. Is that right?
0: Hopefully, if all goes according to plan, I've definitely had a few wrenches thrown in the works just due to COVID shutdowns of my campus. Right. And there's also a lot of kind of art and science in the process of figuring out successful protocols for these reactions that I'm doing in the lab. So lots of trial and error, and each trial takes a lot of time. So right now, I'm working on sort of ironing out ironing out the kinks in these MHC reactions that I'm doing, but if I can manage to stay on a good schedule with that, I should be finishing up in the spring and hopefully moving on to something else interesting. I always something like to else. try something new. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Are you happy with the area where you're at and you're, where you're going to school? Is, is that your plan to stay there? Or are you thinking about moving on?
0: Well, I really do love New Orleans and I've Made some great connections here, but I love to experience new things as well. And I'm thinking about moving back to the Pacific Northwest. I worked as a fisheries observer there before I came back to start grad school here. And that was a phenomenal experience um, and just a really nice place to live. A lot fewer herps, but a lot of other diversity to
1: Yeah. Well, where were you at there?
0: I was living in a small town on the coast called Coos Bay. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: I drove through there once.
0: Yeah, on the 101.
1: Yeah. A friend who lived in Bandon.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love Bandon. I used to go there all the yeah. time for the, the shore yeah. down there. It was beautiful.
1: Haystack rock out there and all that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, just beautiful. Just a, the whole drive in that area, driving around that area was just beautiful. So uh, uh, no wonder you you might want to go back there.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I want to be a fisheries observer again. Uh, it was uh, yeah really interesting, and I'm glad that I did it. But it's really grueling work, and I get so enormously seasick it was so embarrassing <laughs> so oh. oh my gosh the first time i ever went out on a boat for just like a single day trip on a small long line boat that was just out fishing for black cod or sable fish and the skipper actually thought he was going to have to call the coast guard to come get me because i was so Ooh. seasick that I, I got sun poisoning just like leading over the boat so maybe i'll I'll stick to like the terrestrial animals for at least a little wow. while longer. <laughs> yeah
1: So now I'm a little curious about this. So you were, um, give me the title of that again.
0: So it's a fisheries observer and they're contracted employees that work for private companies typically, but they do work for the federal government for NOAA fisheries specifically. And Uh basically what they do is go out on fishing vessels with the fishing crews and kind of act as an observer for their interactions with wildlife. So that can range from... Interactions with protected species that aren't necessarily part of the fishing process. So like interactions with whales, sea lions, et cetera. And also part of my job was taking a subsample from these trawl catches. So basically a little one basket, two basket sample where I would use that as a proxy to extrapolate how many of each species I had in my sample that were likely to have been present in the total catch. So. Oh, I see. That's a really important source of data for fisheries managers, so they can understand how much kind of unintentional impact these trawl fisheries are having on the environment.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So I th- I thought maybe it was something along the lines of compliance, but it's more. It
0: is sort of. So. Uh,
1: yeah, maybe you could explain a little bit more. But
0: yeah, it's it's kind of a nuanced job because the fishing crews are typically very professional with you, you know, understand why you're there, but there can be Uh tension on some vessels. And I didn't experience that much of this myself. Interestingly, I think actually being a woman, which is uncommon in the profession, shielded me from a lot of this. I had a lot of male colleagues that were heckled pretty frequently on almost every trip. But uh, so we were supposed to be there for compliance to some degree. We were supposed to do safety checks of the vessels. So we would check all their safety equipment, their beacons, stuff like that. And if anything was out of compliance, they weren't allowed to go on the trip. Ooh. It was a lot of responsibility to, to have in this job where you're sort of putting yourself out in the middle of the ocean with a bunch of people that you don't know and you're the fed, you know?
1: Yeah. So it was wow. very interesting.
0: It, it built character for sure. But I met a lot of great people. <laughs> I met a lot of great fishing crews, honestly, that were very welcoming um, and for the the vast majority of them are totally easy to get along with understand why you're there and it's smooth sailing, you know, not to be corny, but,
1: well, I mean, you're really, you're really there to protect their interests too in the long run. Correct? Exactly. I mean, yeah. You know, cause overfishing means they don't work. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I came on the job right in the middle of a shrimp strike. So the prices for shrimp were really, really low and the fishermen sort of had to wait out until they could get better prices for their catch. And so I just didn't have any work for like, a month and a half and that's when i spent a lot of time sort of just falling in love with the area driving around by myself taking in the scenery because there was literally nothing else to do but
1: a yeah, shrimp it... strike
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean the shrimp oh, yeah. weren't on strike so <laughs> what does that mean I'm...
0: it was just uh so the fisheries that i worked in were mostly the long line fisheries where you uh-huh. go out in these about 25 footer boats where they have it's literally a long line. It's like a bunch of tubs of rope with hooks on what are called ganyons. So about three, every three feet, you'll get a really, really big hook. That's like the size of a sea that you can make with your hand. And you uh-huh. put those down for big bottom feeding fish, like sable fish, but uh-huh. there's also the shrimp fishery, which is a trawl fishery. So uh-huh. you would catch these teeny, teeny little Oregon pink shrimp, which are absolutely minuscule. So they're like really hard to sort through and kind of pick out all the little flat fish from just because they're tiny. like, uh-huh. you'll have to look at it's just hilarious they're so funnily small but uh there's a lot of you know back and forth between the fishing crews and the seafood purchasers so if there's you know an excess of supply i think it was in this case they just had a bunch of frozen shrimp from last year so they're like well we're not gonna pay you to go shrimp or whatever or we're gonna give you
1: uh-huh.
0: 10 cents a pound or whatever astronomically silly low price so the fishers were basically just kind of waiting them out and freezing them out until they ran out of stock so I had nothing I to do until they did and they could get, you know, a decent price for their hard work and putting their lives at risk in right. some cases.
1: Right. Uh, so the, you'd had nothing to do but traipse around the, the countryside and observing nature and enjoying yourself.
0: I found so many newts. Oh, my God. It was so <laughs> cool.
1: I have
0: I have such fond memories of just these giant pools of these bright orange efts, which I did not know at the time were as poisonous as they are. <laughs> but they're like the hilariously poisonous ones. Yeah. But It was really cool.
1: Uh, I was privileged enough to find a small pool of those in California a number of years ago and got some shots with my underwater camera of a little oh, video of so those cool. things scampering around in this little pool. It was very I love neat. the
0: way they move. There's just nothing wrong with amphibians. Like, they're so cute. I feel like they're the most inoffensive creatures <laughs> in the whole world.
1: Yeah. Did you see, you know, the big uh, charismatic forms, the whales and dolphins and orcas and things like that? When you were I there? was
0: so mad because everybody and their grandma that year saw orcas and I've still never seen one. I'm very bitter, Aww. but I did see a lot of other cool things. Uh, so sperm whales were a notorious uh, pest, I guess you could say, for these longline boats. They would basically trail the boats and just pick fish on, off the lines as they were coming up.
1: No kidding. Wow. Yeah,
0: <laughs> And they're huge. They're humongous. It was like the size of the boat plus another half and you would see them surface pretty close. Yeah. Wow. But um, I saw what I think was a blue whale. Maybe it was like a bit of wishful thinking, but we were trained in this like three week training course we had to take um, to identify whales by the blow pattern. So kind of whatever mm-hmm. angle of incidence you would get of this water spout, you could kind of infer what species you were looking at. I'm going to pretend it was a blue whale, even if it wasn't, but, um, sea lions, not cetaceans, you know, pinnipeds, but they are mm-hmm. everywhere. They're everywhere in one of the ports that i was shipped out of every now and then newport you had to basically like kind of step over them (laughs) to get on the boat they're just completely coating the docks and it was a giant pain if you had to get through them to get on the boat and they were not having it because male sea lions are enormous they're way bigger than they look from far away (laughs) and they're they're not friendly so
1: yeah i understand you you need to stay away from them male the big males
0: Yeah. So you get California, and I think they're called Stellar's sea lions. And there's a difference in size between the two, but the males of both species are pretty large. And I think the scariest moment of my entire life was in training. We had a really exhaustive three-week training course where it was a full day of classes every day, you know, practical stuff. Like, in this instance, we had to get on what are called immersion suits. And then we had to jump in the water at the port and get into a lifeboat while wearing the immersion suit. And if you've ah. never seen one, it's like a foam rubber suit that makes you look gumby. And you have to be able to get into this thing in under a minute and test yourself once a month to make sure you can still do it. But so they had us jump in the water in the port and I'm sitting there wearing this immersion suit and there's a sea lion in the water, like four feet from me. And I'm like, mm. and I got in that <laughs> boat real quick. I was in that boat in two
1: seconds. So
0: <laughs> it was a very good motivator, <laughs> but it was absolutely terrifying
1: wow mm-hmm. i i saw my first experiences with them were was in monterey bay and they're just laying on the docks you know you have a like a, a jetty or whatever and everybody's boat is tied up and mm-hmm. there's these big knot of these things laying on, in one area it's like well what if your boats on the other side of those you're, you're kind of sol you can't really can't really jump over five sea lions so that was
0: exactly the scene that I was painting right there <laughs> with having to get on yeah. these boats so I'd have to make some serious leaps sometimes to sort of get around them because wow. you want to give them a several foot berth you don't want to get anywhere near that mouth if you can avoid it but yeah so
1: you've you've jumped over some
0: I've jumped around I would never jump directly over one because I'm not a very good jumper I got no ups so I'll sort of you know do my little dodging around them but
1: okay not quite that because people that have jumped over them that's that's probably a pretty small club Yeah. Right.
0: Successfully at least. Yeah. 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 One thing I'm really, really glad I never had to do though. uh, We were trained how to do it, but if a sea lion or any sort of pinniped got pulled up in a trawl net and was dead, we were given a saw (laughs) and feel free to edit this out. If this is too gory for the, the final podcast. And we were supposed to cut off the top jaw of the sea lion and mail it in a plastic bag to our debriefer to tell us what species it was based on the tooth confirmation. And that never happened to me. And I'm very grateful because it did Ooh. happen to some people that I knew.
1: Ouch. So just the top, top portion.
0: Yes. So I think you just needed basically the top muzzle and that was enough for them to judge what species it was based on the dentition.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Interesting job.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm just going to say right now that they, they didn't pay enough, did they? You know,
0: No. Sure, <laughs> you know, Actually, for uh, somebody who's fresh out of undergrad and with just a bachelor's degree, I made I made way more money at that job than I do as a grad student. I can tell you.
1: Ah, okay. Still not
0: enough. Yeah. But
1: Still it was, not enough. You know, a lot
0: better than a lot of people in field biology get. Yeah. So I was happy with
1: that. Here are your instructions for basically taking apart the head of this. Yep. Of this animal. <laughs>
0: Very normal. Yeah.
1: And uh, and then putting it in the mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well. That's amazing. So, uh, obviously you've had some fun with that and you're having fun down in New Orleans, but are there other places you want to travel and other, well, let's talk, let's talk about herps. I mean, is there other places you'd like to go to anything on your list in terms of, uh, regions or biomes or just animals in particular you're interested in seeing?
0: Absolutely. So I did some work in Central America for non-herp related projects And I Uh must have been so annoying to have as a field assistant because all I wanted to do was go look for frogs. I was supposed to be mist netting for birds, uh, doing a lot of other stuff, but I would just disappear into the rainforest for hours at a time just to, you know, go herping. But I would really, really love to go back to Costa Rica because I was there in a coastal area and I didn't really get up into the cloud forests at all. And I would love to go there. I would also really, really love to go to Borneo, uh, areas of China, Oh, oh man everywhere (laughs) but hopefully later this summer i might if covid situations work out be attending a field school that is part of a collaboration between my university and a university in gabon and it's basically just like a field skills program put on by that university in gabon a professor at which is one of the most frequent collaborators with my pi so i might be going to that uh i'm gonna do a lot of herping it's gonna be great if i go (laughs) So yeah, I'm thrilled about that.
1: And field skills. What what exactly is, is that? Is that in terms of field research skills or
0: yes. So okay. basically just a lot of different sampling strategies that have a wide application in the field. Okay. Um, best practices when dealing with dangerous wildlife, stuff like that. Uh-huh. And I've never been before. A lot of the other students in my lab have done work at Lope National Park in Gabon. So I don't think they've attended the field school, but they've been there a bunch of times and it's very beautiful and I've been extremely jealous. So hopefully it'll work out.
1: Well, that sounds pretty interesting to me.
0: (laughs) I want to see a viper so badly. They're one of my favorite species. I love them. So that's my dream. We'll see if I can even see one in the leaf litter. But if I do, you will all be the first to know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That'd be be great. It'd be all over Twitter. Um, Mm -hmm. So that'd be great. Let me ask you about, uh, you obviously have some fun with Twitter and I don't, I don't know if you're on Instagram. Uh, I didn't, I didn't like Snoop you out or anything. I don't no. know if you're on Instagram or things like that, but Twitter, I, I I, just enjoy what I call, we all call science Twitter. You know, I just follow a bunch of biologists basically. Mm-hmm. And, and we're you know, folks that are sort of in that sort of in that nebula, uh, biology nebula. And it's just been a lot of fun. It's been educational, but it's just all, Fun too. People are are doing really cool things in you know different parts of the world with different you know organisms, and it doesn't have to be herbs. I, I kind of like hanging out with some of the bird biologists and the mm-hmm. fish biologists and archaeologists and people like that. So uh, is that your jam as well? Is that something you're you're into? Or
0: yeah, for sure. I think one of the most useful things about Science Twitter is that it's helped me really put the name to the face in a lot of the papers that I read. So Uh my PI before would be always telling me, oh, have you read the paper by so-and-so? I'm like, I don't know who that is. You know, it's very hard to keep the names in your brain when it's just an abstract at the top of, you know, the paper you're reading. But now it sort of feels like these are all very fleshed out people with full lives, you know, vibrant personalities. And I really, really enjoy especially seeing local faculty. So there are a lot of people that I've interacted with in other capacities, just as a student in Louisiana. And now I see them just blowing up fish Twitter. It's so cool. I really love the humanizing effect it has on a field that a lot of people see as sort of dry. And I've really enjoyed getting to know my peers in a way that the absence of scientific conferences this year has sort of taken away from a lot of people. So it's also sort of filled that void as well.
1: So it's kind of become the alternative to the chats in the hallway.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, again, I'm an early career researcher, so I hadn't really gotten my feet wet with a lot of that yet anyway. So I'm really excited for when the conferences come back, because it's going to be popping. I mean, everybody's going to have fun. So I really love the community there too.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure the first one or two are going to be, they're going to be barn burners, right? People are just going to be (laughs) happy and it'll just be uh, a lot of happy people there that just grateful to see each other and to sort of interact. And oh my gosh, we're talking. Yeah. So if my research face. is bad
0: at these conferences, everybody will forget because they'll just be happy to see everybody. So I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of leaning on that one.
1: Awesome. Uh, so what else, what else can you tell me about yourself? You're, you're from Philadelphia. I'm going to get a little origin story here, but sure. you're, you've, uh, this is biology sort of in your jam since you were a little kid or?
0: Yes. I have a lot of hilarious pictures that my parents have taken of me when I was like three or four years old with just handfuls of worms in the kitchen, <laughs> you know, like, hi mom. Oh. So I was that kind of kid. And my dad got me two pet snakes when I was an infant. I must've I must been like a year old. And the second of which just passed away this year, actually. So he was oh, agent. Wow. He was like a 24 year old corn snake. And so I've just been exposed to it from day one. My dad is an avid bird watcher. Um ah. Took me out just on those same sorts of nature walks all the time when I was a kid. So,
1: uh-huh.
0: kind of grew up, uh, never had that doubt of, you know, what do I want to be? I always have had the same path in life since I was three and have stuck to it as best as I can. But uh, I moved down here to do my undergraduate education at Tulane and was really fortunate to have some very wonderful faculty and mentorship there. So, uh, Professor Janata Henry and their eBio department sort of hooked me up with my first field job, which was the one that I did in Panama on avian behavioral ecology. And that kind of kickstarted my journey into all the rest. So, uh-huh. it's been really, really rewarding, and I'm glad that I've stayed the path because it's definitely had some hurdles. Uh, nobody warned me how much math there is in biology. It's like oh. it comes, you know, it comes out from behind like the the door to stab you. But, <laughs> but yeah,
1: I, I've talked to a few people. That is the biggest mountain they've ever climbed mm-hmm. in their career in their biological careers was the math
0: it's been so good for me though because i came into it you know as a a very complainy undergraduate but now i'm finding myself using these softwares doing these analyses and i'm like oh yeah that totally makes sense and it really informs the research that i read from other people it's just it's really fun and rewarding to have gained those skills through so much blood sweat and tears you know
1: yeah and you've done birds it sounds like birds Fish, Mm -hmm. herbs, malaria. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I was a zookeeper intern for two seasons as well, which was a really interesting experience. Uh, But I've sort of gotten my hands on a little bit of everything, which is how I like it. And that's sort of what I do when I'm just like out on my nature walks as well. I think everything has something about it that could be potentially fascinating. You know, fungi, lichen, insects, etc. I'm not a specialist. I kind of just appreciate Uh it all for
1: what it is. So do you uh, go, I know the Audubon Zoo is probably close by where you live. Is that safe to say? Or are you fairly close yeah. to that?
0: Yeah, it's kind of almost walking distance from where I live. Yes, but that is somewhere that I go pretty frequently with my family. It's a wonderful uh-huh. zoo. Uh, keepers there are fantastic. So it's been a great experience. It's a really good asset yeah. for the city.
1: Okay. I've been there once and it was. I thought it was excellent. Just. Mm-hmm. Really cool place to visit. Plus, we were there in February and it was like still nice and we saw lots of stuff around, you know, herons and other, you know, waterfowl and other things. It's like, well, this is, it's February and we're seeing a lot of uh, cool, cool stuff. So,
0: yeah, it's it's really, really awesome that you can see something interesting pretty much year round here. But there are so many squatters at the Audubon Zoo, birds that just (laughs) kind of fly in and out of the exhibits and eat the other animals food and then just leave. So kind of funny picking (laughs) out, you know, who's supposed to be there and who's not when you're at the zoo
1: nice so what's up what's up with gators you have gators on your frog watch do you see those on a regular basis or
0: so you almost always see alligators when you go to jean lafitte even in the colder Uh months if you know where to look and a lot of them are kind of habitual like you'll see the same individual in the same spot uh on you know variety of occasions there's one that i pay particular attention to it's about four or five feet long now, but it's missing its right foot. So it's right front foot. Oh. So it's very easily identifiable, but he's usually stunning in a very specific spot along the boardwalk. But it's really easy to find them. They make themselves very obvious, you know, uh-huh. and just turn the corner and there's an eight foot long, big old alligator just sitting there.
1: So uh, obviously you uh, you can see Lefty, you know, you recognize Lefty because <laughs> he's missing... Yeah. Uh, you know, a paw, a paw, if you will. Can you tell like a regular, you know, can you say, oh, there's old, you know, so there's old spot nose or whatever.
0: To a certain degree, you can based on the size. Most of the uh-huh. midsize individuals that don't have those outstanding physical features are pretty much indistinguishable from one another, at least to my eye. But there are a few individuals that are just enormous that kind of hang out in the same spot down at the very end of the trail. And are fairly reliable to see. Uh, there was a nesting female that I was keeping track of for a couple of months last year. Ooh. So that was cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, and uh, you saw some of the babies when they hatched? And-
0: no, I did. Well, I, oh. I might have seen them, you know, scattered throughout the park, but not coming out of the nest. Unfortunately, I, I give them a wide berth, you know, when it's babies being born time. So ah, I don't know if you've okay. ever encountered a nesting female alligator, but I'm not eager to. So. Uh,
1: I I have seen a few, and I just kind of stayed away.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, I hear that sound. I'm up a tree. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, the, the weird little like bellow of the nesting female oh, yeah. alligator. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I took a, a class. This is back in 1977. I took a swamp ecology class. And one of the things we did, we, we spent 11 days canoeing through Okee <gasps> Swamp. That's so cool. And uh, we did an overall <clears throat> biological survey. We were there. We, you know, fish and birds and Plants and everybody kind of had a little project. And my job, one of my jobs, was to count alligators. That's awesome. And, uh, That's so yeah, interesting. I got 159 unique alligators. Oh my god! On, on that trip, that, I'm that so dumb. I yeah, it was it was pretty pretty interesting. But uh, on a couple of occasions, we would uh, uh, encounter the, the the big bellowing males. I mm-hmm. assume there are males that would uh, you know this low frequency vibration that would just sort of you know carry out you know you could mm-hmm. kind of almost feel it in your skeleton you know
0: oh yeah it sends a shiver up my spine i'm like mm,
1: nope yeah
0: uh, yeah i'm out of there but that's really cool to hear <laughs> when you're at a respectable distance you know
1: yeah so uh, i know exactly what you're talking about and i i get a kick out of just watching them even if they're just kind of hanging out maybe they're swimming around a little bit or it's just kind of fun just to watch them and I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's almost like like a window to you know, they're so primeval. So you you, mm-hmm. it feels different to me from, say, watching a duck. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm actually just sitting here watching a, you know, a ginormous monster in the course of its day. You know,
0: yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the coolest things about them is just how little they care about people. You know, not that it's to be pushed or taken advantage of, but at certain points on this boardwalk, you kind of just have to go along. You can't give them as wide of a berth as you would like to because they're sitting a foot away from the boardwalk. But Uh. they just really don't care. They just couldn't be bothered. You know, he's taking a nap in the sun, just absolutely could not care less about me walking up behind him. And there was Mm -hmm. a really nice vantage point that I was watching this nesting female from. And she would notice that I was there and it was a safe spot. It was like five or six feet elevated above. And she would kind of just like look up at me with a little evil eye and then just close <laughs> it so slowly and peacefully and just be like, ah, whatever. So uh, it, it's interesting yeah. to be around around wildlife that really isn't afraid of you. And that should be a hit to, to stay as far away from them as you can. But I think it's fascinating to watch from a safe spot.
1: Well, I got to tell you my one, uh, my one gator story. I, I like to tell it. I was in South Texas and uh, I was out with my father-in-law. We were, at this small pond at the place called Laguna Atascosa, which is a big national wildlife refuge down there. And there's a big female gator in this pond, and she was at the other end. And we were watching her from across the pond, and she was sort of slipping into the water, you know, kind of on the edge. Mm-hmm. And a duck came in and flew down and landed on the water. And it's one of those, I can't remember the species, but this is a diving duck, right? Goes down, you know, underwater. And so as soon as it hits the water that gator just slips in. <laughs> and so, you know, my father and I are like nudging each other, you know, like oh, what's going to happen, you know. So, and this duck is k- kind of paddling around figure eights and it would dive down and come back up and the gator's gone, oh, no. we don't see the gator. And and then the duck dives and it, <laughs> never, comes up. it never comes up. There's no ripple. There's no thrashing. There's no feathers on the water. The duck just never came up. That was it. (laughs) This reminds me of one of
0: my favorite crocodilian stories. It was not with alligators, uh, but when I was working as a field assistant on one project in Central America, I was responsible for setting up mist nets to catch birds and sort of we were banding, taking samples, et cetera. But the birds that we were trying to target lived in wetlands. They were a species that kind of walks on pond vegetation and aquatic vegetation with really big mm-hmm. feet. So we got to get down into the mud, into the water to set up these nets. And my friend and I, who was the other field assistant are, you know, happily setting up our net, you know, going along our way. And a car stops on the road above us, about 15 feet above on this embankment. And a woman gets out of the car and she starts speaking to us in Spanish, which I could sort of understand at the time, but she was talking really fast. She's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing down there? And I was like, I- We're working. I don't know. And then she just kind of, like, closed the door and drove away, like, shaking her head. And I was like, all right, well, that was weird. And then, like, 20 minutes later, somebody else stops, does the same exact thing. They're like, what are you doing down there? We're like, I don't know. Working? And then they spoke a little bit better English and could enlighten us (laughs) to the fact that we were in a heavily crocodile-infested area. (laughs) Probably... Should not have been there, but, uh, we, we lived, it was fine. We saw some caimans, nothing super big, but yeah, it was right on the Panama Canal. Uh, really not, not a very smart thing for us to do, but we lived, it's fine. Good party story. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. You never actually saw the, the giant crocodile, but there was might've been one close by.
0: Oh, I guarantee you. Uh, we saw like a eight or nine foot long one in the same exact spot that we had been standing the day before, like later oh. in the week. So we're like, this is fine. That's fine it builds character sorry right.
1: oh uh, yeah and it's a it, again it's a great story to tell mm. you know <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well listen i i want to thank you for coming on the show um this is kind of a cold call here really i mean we don't really know each other you know uh, at all uh, other than interacting on twitter a little bit but uh it's been kind of fun to get to know you and find out you know more about what you're about because i i really enjoy your your twitter feed and, and and uh, I'll, I'll post that uh, in the show notes so people can peek and see what you're up to with uh, thank you. your research and with uh, the NOLA frog watch and just, you know, all the cool little froggy pictures and meatball pictures and things like that. So
0: Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure getting to know you and talk to you as well. This was a super cool experience.
1: Yeah, yeah it's your first podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. Well, thanks again. And uh, I'll have the show on the air probably sometime next year so let you know when it when we uh release it so
0: sounds great thank you so much again for your time this has really been a pleasure
1: good well that's it for episode 30 gina's wiki thank you so much for coming on the show and i look forward to when the frogs and box turtles around new orleans wake up and you get to start sharing tweets about them again And, folks, if you're interested in Frog Watch, uh, see the show notes for links and more info. Now, next week's show will be a little different, and this is your sneak preview. Instead of an interview, there will be a panel discussion. A panel discussion about something. So tune in and find out. And, as always, thank you, Patreon people. I really appreciate your support. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show running... You can visit patreon.com slash and that's all one word. Now somebody asked me if this part of the show is a pre-recorded insert but no. Nothing but fresh content for y'all so once again I want to remind everyone that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com, and you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and other followers and some of our guests and along with all of that you can also contact me directly at so muchpingle at gmail dot com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take very good care of yourselves and, and don't forget to hurt better.